Good morning. Hope you're doing well this morning. Um, time to get into our Bible passage for the morning, which is Acts chapter 14, if you want to flick it up in a Bible and have a look at it there. And as you're flicking it up in a Bible, if you've got a hand spare or a phone spare or a screen spare somewhere, you might want to Google Paul's first missionary journey. Or if you've got a, a very fancy Bible, you might have some maps in the back or in the front that show you um, the routes that Paul took when he was going around the known world, speaking about Jesus. Well, today we're getting to the second half of his, what's called his first missionary journey. So it goes a little bit like this. I think this is the right way around for the camera. If you imagine my hand is Turkey, and this is the Mediterranean Sea here, and um, this is kind of the coastland of, it, of Syria and then Israel going down here. This is where Paul went. Went from Antioch, which is kind of in the armpit uh, here between Syria and what's today modern day Turkey. Took a boat down to Cyprus in the middle of the Mediterranean, and then up from Cyprus to a place called Italia, which actually, if you've been on holiday to Turkey, south coast of Turkey, you'll have probably have flown to Antalya and then taken a bus somewhere along the coast. That's where we went for honeymoon back in the day, many moons ago. Um, they sailed to this place, Atalia or Antalya today, and then they walked due north, maybe get a cart, it's quite a long journey, up to right in the middle of Turkey today, a place called Antioch. Different Antioch from where they began. This is Pisidian Antioch, kind of Turkish Antioch, right in the middle of modern day Turkey. And that's where we were last week, mostly. The first part of the story was in Cyprus. And the second part of the story, Paul was speaking at a synagogue in this big place called Antioch. But at the end of the story, they get kicked out, pushed out, moved on, sent packing from there. And that's where we pick up the story this week. Paul moves on to a city called Iconium which is, I can't remember, I haven't written it down. It's the fourth biggest city in Turkey today is what used to be Iconium. Um, it's a wealthy place. It's a kind of uh, market town where trade routes meet around, surrounded by farming country. Um, it's a pretty wealthy place. That's where Paul gets to today. Before we read it though, I want you to think about your own missionary journey. Um, where do you start and end? Because they will see in the story as I read it today, they go to Iconium. That's kind of just a little bit further inland and, uh, and down to the east, to the east um, from where Antioch is. And then they carry on to Lystra and Derby, and then they turn around and they go all the way back again, kind of complete the horseshoe back to Antioch by boat. But what about your missionary journey? It says in scripture, Jesus says, we spent a few uh, weeks going through uh, this at the beginning of last year, I think it was, 2022. Jesus says some of his final words to his disciples in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. So go and be missionaries. That's what Jesus said at the end of his time on earth as he ascended into heaven. He promised his spirit would be with us. He promised he would give us everything that he needed, that we needed. And he didn't just send out people like Paul, sends out you and me as well. So if you're a Christian, this is especially for you. Um, if you're not, well, there'll be, I hope, plenty for you to chew on as well in the next few minutes that we look at this story. But if you're a Christian, let me ask you, what's your missionary journey that you take every day? Where do you begin? Well, I presume you begin in bed, <laughs> wake up in the morning, get out of bed. What do you do? Where do you go? Down for breakfast and then out to a place of work, out to the corner shop for your paper and your pint of milk, uh, out to the bowls club, out to whatever your day brings. Well, where do you go next? Could you plot it on a map? If you had a map of Ammonford or a map of Brunaman or a map of Sandilo or wherever it is that you live, 
Maybe you're far, far away from us here in the Amman Valley, but print yourself a map or draw yourself a map or just think of it in your head for the moment. Where do you go in your day usually? What's your missionary journey going to look like tomorrow on Monday or this afternoon? Who are you going to meet? Where will you get a chance to speak? Where will it just be nods and, and a brief hello? Where will it be long time spent with other people? Where will you get a chance to really get to know others? Where is it going to be just a quick five minute conversation every now and again? What's your missionary journey? How is it going to work out this week? Well, let me read you about the second half of Paul's first missionary journey in chapter 14 of Acts. You can see if you can follow that map through on your phone uh, or uh, in your mind. Don't get distracted if you've got your phone out. Now, let me read to you the second half of the missionary journey. And then we're going to spot two things, okay? Paul has time or gives time. There's something about tailoring. Paul tailors his message and, um, and it's all wrapped in trust trust in God, and so should our missionary journeys be as well. Let's read Acts 14. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. When it says Jews, by the way, it's not just talking ethnically, it's not like a racial thing, but it's talking about those people who followed the Jewish religion, who didn't turn to follow Jesus, and who stood against Paul. It's almost like a political thing, or a, um, describing a group that believes particular religious things, that's irritated by Paul and Barnabas and the attention that they're getting, and that stands against them. So don't think um, anti-Semitism when you hear Luke use that. It's shorthand for this group of people who are opposing Paul, who happen to come from Jewish background. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and the Jews, together with their leaders, to ill-treat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lycanian cities of Lystra and Derbe. So they're moving kind of southeast at, the, at this time to the surrounding country, where they continued to preach the good news. In Lystra, there sat a man crippled in his feet, who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lycanian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gate because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, and they're speaking a different language, and they twig, they get, they understand what's going on, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, but he hasn't let himself, left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul, dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead, 
But after this, the disciples had gathered round him. He got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Imagine that, just being stoned within an inch of your life, knocked unconscious, really bruised and badly beaten. And the next day, cracks on with the mission, onwards on the missionary journey. They preached the good news in that city too, and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. See, they turn around and they go backwards through the horseshoe, encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. There's a cities on the route down to the beach, down to the coast, to the port, to get the boat home. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they'd been committed to the grace of God for the work that they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he'd opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. It's quite a journey, a journey of, um, of real hardship, isn't it? chased from one city to the next, shadowed by this group of people who really, really have it in for them, stoned and beaten and threatened and pushed away. But also, it's a beautiful journey. Often they're welcomed and people believe and trust and see the good news of Jesus as really good news, not as a threat, not as something that wrecks life, but gives life. And they give themselves in faith. They trust themselves to God. It's a really beautiful journey, full of ups and downs, full of twists and turns. Um, I wonder what your journey's like. I imagine it's like that too, isn't it? When you get out of morning and sometimes it's a rough day, sometimes it's a brilliant, beautiful, sunny day. Sometimes you have great conversations with people. Sometimes you have wonderful times of prayer, of opening the Bible and feel like God speaks to you really personally and really, almost audibly. And then other days it's just rough. Other days you feel it's really hard even to get out of bed in the morning and it's hard to pray and you miss opportunities and you mess it up. Well, we can trust ourselves into God's hands. Um, let's look at those three things that I mentioned earlier on. Trusting ourselves into his hands in our missionary journey as we go about our days, as we walk through lives sent out by God to be a part of his work in the world. Well, what do we need? One, we need to give people time. Two, we need to tailor what we say to the people in front of us. And three, we need to trust. Trust in Jesus and trust other people into his hands too. I wonder if he spotted those three things as we went along. First of, all, first of all, the shortest amount of time we're going to spend is to think about time. Paul gives them a lot of time, doesn't he? And Barnabas too, at the beginning, um, said that. Uh, in I think it's in verse three. Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there in Iconium, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of grace. And people start to believe and they give them time. Other people start to chafe and struggle and stand against them and they don't run off just yet they stay and they give more time and they persuade and they're bold and they're speaking courageously confirming the message proving that it's true working really hard to give themselves body and soul words and deeds to the people around them i wonder who you spend time with day by day i imagine it'll be your family who you live with or the neighbors around about or your colleagues we spend hours and hours and hours a day with our colleagues, sometimes more than we do with our families. Do you give them time though? Do you ever put your phone down and spend time looking people in the eye and talking and listening and asking good questions? 
At lunch break, are you there with the newspaper? Or do you give your colleagues time? Um, when they're struggling, are you somebody who's just trying to get out of conversations as quick as possible and get on with your day? Or do you give people time? Can I encourage you, if you're walking around Ammonford, this is the kind of town where everybody seems to know each other, where everybody's got time for a chat. So would you make time? Maybe leave home 10 minutes earlier next week, um, next day, just so that you can have a chance to bump into someone and not feel awkward, not feel that you have to be rushing on your way. But give people a little bit of time on the bus, on the street, um, in your workplace, in Coffee Cake and Company, or on a Sunday morning. Could you rearrange your time a little bit, have lunch a bit later, have breakfast a bit earlier, and spend time with people? They do it at the end as well, don't they? They back home in Antioch, back in their home church, breathing a sigh of relief, telling everybody the wonderful stories, the hair-raising stories of what they've been a part of, and they stayed there a long time as well with the disciples, encouraging, building people up, strengthening their souls, saying, come on, we can do this, but giving people not just a little bit, not watching the clock, giving them time. Who's in your life you could give time to this week? Well, the second thing that Paul does is he tailors his message. That's this middle bit when they eventually do have to flee from Iconium, running for their lives. They go through the country talking to as many people as they possibly can and they get to Lystra. It's a little bit off the beaten track. It's not down the big main road. Maybe they are kind of trying to hide and keep their heads down for, for a bit, but they can't help it for long before they go public with Jesus again. They can't help keeping him to themselves because they're speaking, they're explaining, they're giving people more time. And then Paul sees a guy who's been, who's been disabled for life since he was born, couldn't speak. And Paul sees something in him. Maybe it's a miraculous kind of prophetic insight or something. Maybe it's just that he sees this guy's really listening, watches his face and sees that he, he's believing and trusting and he wants to know Jesus for himself. And, feels like if this Jesus can make the world and can die for sins and can rise again on the third day, well, then maybe he can, maybe he could fix my body. Maybe he could do something, something wonderful in my life. I wonder if Paul sees that in his eyes. And so he looks at him and he says, stand up on your feet. And he does. And it's the most mind-blowing thing these people have ever seen. And they intuit, they think, they feel that there's something divine going on here, right? There's something from God. And they're halfway there, and then they get it wrong. They start, instead of worshipping the God of heaven, they worship these two men in front of them. Now, why would they do that? Okay, there's a story going around, written about 50 years before this by a Roman poet called Ovid. You can read about it, Google Ovid Metamorphoses, and you can read the story uh, in part of, that, um, part of that book. You can read the story about two mysterious men who come to this very region, the region of Lystra and the surrounding area, and they go from house to house to house, a thousand houses they visit, and nobody takes them in, nobody shows them a welcome at all. Until this old couple, poor old couple who live in this ramshackle wooden shed, they welcome them in and they feed them and clothe them and give them a place to stay. And it turns out that these two mysterious men are the gods, Zeus and Hermes, and they send a great flood, and they flood out those thousand other people who hadn't welcomed them, but they rescue this old couple and thank them for their hospitality. And so you can imagine that's in the mind of these people. They live out in the country. Maybe they're not particularly literate. They're real full-on pagans. They love worshipping the gods and all these kind of strange and mysterious things. And they know this story of two powerful, mysterious men who've come to their region before, and they weren't welcomed, and they brought disaster. And this time, they're going to get it right. They see this amazing, marvellous thing and they know 
they know what's going on, and so they think, it's Zeus, it's Hermes, back again. We've got to welcome them this time. And so they bring the bulls out, they call the priest up, they're getting the garlands and the flowers and the fire ready, the knives out for the bulls. They're going to have a, a great big worship festival because Zeus and Hermes have turned up again. And Paul and Barnabas, when they realise what's going on, they, it breaks their hearts. It breaks their hearts that, that they should be taking glory from God from the God who made us. And so they rush out into the town square, tear their clothes, showing how, um, how their hearts are torn. They tear their clothes and they say, don't do it. They preach them this beautiful little sermon, really small, really tight, really beautiful little sermon that's very, very different from last week. If you were here, Acts chapter 13, Paul, same guy, speaks a great long biblical sermon, working through lots of bits of story and history from the Old Testament, weaving together to show that Jesus is the answer to all that you've been hoping for. For the Jews, right? The Jews knew their Old Testament and that's what they needed. They're hoping for a king who would come, who would be a bit like David, but even better. And then Paul says to them, well, that king is coming. His name is Jesus. But these people, they don't know anything about, presumably, the Old Testament. There's not a lot of time to get the scrolls out and be finding quotes and that kind of thing from um, from the Old Testament. These are people who are pagans. Maybe they haven't ever, ever even heard about Jewish people and their beliefs. So Paul goes in a very different direction. He tailors his message for them. They're people who live in quite a rural place. They're people who are presumably farmers, people who depend on the seasons, who have been through that nerve-wracking time when drought wrecks the land and your crops are on the edge of of danger, you're on the, ed on the edge of famine and then the rain comes and you breathe a sigh of relief and you just want to thank someone. They've been through that or the times when the harvest finally comes and you've been hungry, you've been getting to the bottom of the barrel of your last year's corn and then the harvest comes and they have a huge festival and they've got piles of grain and, and bottles of wine and they're rejoicing and their hearts are glad and they're full of happiness and they just want someone to say thank you to. And they have Zeus who's constantly throwing down lightning bolts and flooding people out. They've got Hermes who's sending messages, but they're often confusing. They've got this pantheon of Greek gods and Roman gods that are just not particularly kind or good or patient. And then Paul comes with a message and says, you know, you know that feeling when you just wanted to give thanks to somebody for rain, when your heart was glad. Do you remember that? And you wanted to burst out in praise, but you didn't know who to. Well, let me tell you about the God who you've missed all this time. You've been wasting your time on these nonsense teenage, um, like silly gods who are constantly picking on you and making life difficult. Don't waste time on those vain things anymore. Come and know the real God, the true God, the God who made you, the God who gives the rain, the God who makes your hearts glad, the God who is good. Did you hear him say that a couple of times in the sermon? We're only men too. Turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. He's the good God. We're bringing you good news of a patient God who's been patient with you all this time. But now, now he calls you to know him for yourself. Do you see how that message is tailored to them? It's not different. As in the center, the core, the beating heart of it, it's not different. It's a message about God who loves you and knows you and made you but a God we've turned away from and gone our own way from. A God who, who chooses to do something about that. Who chooses not to be angry with us forever, not to write us off and cut us off and leave us in death, 
but a God who chooses us to write himself into human history, to make himself known to us so that you could see him and touch him and hear his voice as he teaches Jesus. Pretty sure Paul would have been telling them about him at some point as well. Jesus, who's come into the world to make our hearts glad, to give us life to the full, to give us forgiveness, to bring us out of death and into life so that we might know him forever and stop following vain things that never quite reach and never quite satisfy and never quite explain those echoes we have in our hearts, to thank someone, to love, to burst out in praise and share this world with someone who seems beyond it. I wonder if you have that same kind of echo in your heart, where you see these things in the world as, can you see that they're signposts, they're signposts to the God who made you? I don't know what it is that you're into. Maybe you're not a farmer who follows the seasons and, um, and has harvest parties like these people were. Maybe you're really into exercise and you love your body and trying to get it healthy so that you can live as long as you can, so that you can see your grandchildren and spend time playing football with them as much as you can. Maybe you love your body. Well, God made your body. God made your body to be good, to be used for others. That desire you have to live for a long time, well, he made you to live for eternity, not just for 70 years or however long we get. God made you to live forever in a body. And that's why he sent his son in a body to live and to die the death that we deserve. And then to rise again on the third day in a body so that we can have hope that in the future, in heaven, we won't be floating about on clouds as kind of disconnected, disembodied spirits, but we'll be bodies. We'll be us, we'll be human, but glorified. Human, but perfected. Human, but eternal. It's gonna be beautiful. Do you love your body? Do you spend your time doing triathlon, going to the gym, eating well, going on diets, or at least feeling guilty about not doing all of those things? Well, then your intuitions are right. Your body's really good. You're made to live forever. And Jesus is the one, Jesus is the one who takes away all the sin that wrecks our bodies, all the disaster and suffering in this world that wrecks, wrecks our bodies and our world and leads to death. Jesus takes it all and gives us good news. New bodies, new life, new world, new heavens, new earth. That's what we have to look forward to as Christians. That's good news, isn't it? That's a message tailored to you if you love your body. Maybe you could think about your friends. Who is it you're gonna spend time with this week? What is it that they love? What is it that makes their world tick? What is it that gives them meaning? What is it that echoes in their hearts and makes them wish for more and for eternity and for love and for satisfaction? What is it that makes our friends and our family, our loved ones tick? Well, they live in God's world just as we do. So chances are he's gonna be the fulfillment. He's gonna be the one that will that will give us all those deep, deepest longings of our hearts. And how does he do that? Well, he does it through the cross, by taking away all that, all that sin that ruins life and by giving us his life in Christ Jesus, by giving us himself. So we've got to tailor that message, keep that core of it the same, faithful to this good news, this gospel that we pass on. Stay faithful to it, but you can dress it up in whatever clothes you like. Paul says later on in a letter to, um, to one of the churches that he planted, he says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. And to the Greeks, I became like a Greek to win the Greeks. What can you do where you'll be faithful to Jesus, keeping that beating warm heart close to him, but where the tailoring will mean that you are able to spend time to get um, onto your friends, your families, your loved ones' turf, 
to help them understand what this beating heart of the Lord Jesus is for them. Well, okay, Paul spent time, Paul tailored his message, we should too. And then the third thing is they trust. We're running out of time. Um, But what do they do? They see many people trusting themselves to God, believing in this message. And then they, when they go back, it's an amazing thing that they go back, isn't it? To all the places they've been kicked out and stoned and turned away from, they go back to those places, putting themselves in harm's way, giving even more time and trust themselves into God's hands and trust the people that they've led to Jesus into his hands. They trust that God would care for them. They trust that they have the spirit. Trust that the Father would lead them, that the word of God would be their guide and their teacher, would light their way, and they trust them into God's hands. And then they go back home to Antioch and they say, you entrusted us into God's hands for this mission? Well, we've done our best. We've left it all out on the field. We've, you can see, sweat and bled for these people. And now we're home. And we trust that God would do his work, that we've planted the seeds and he would be the farmer who comes and gets the harvest. So what's your missionary journey? Where are you going this week? Will you give people time? Will you spend some time thinking through what makes my friends and my family and my loved ones tick? And how does God's good news connect to that? If you want to talk over that a bit more, catch me in the week. I'd love to talk about that and help you think that through. It's not an easy thing to do. So time, tailoring and trust. That's really where it all begins and ends, isn't it? Does that remind you of anyone? Who is it that we know who gave time to people? He's the God of all the world. Seems very busy, but he gave time to people like you and me. Who is it we know who's tailored his message, came in a human body, wrapped in flesh, speaking Aramaic and Greek to people who spoke Aramaic and Greek? (laughs) Who do we know who dressed up his message in all sorts of beautiful metaphors and parables and stories so that we could understand it and get it and grasp it and it would make our hearts beat with life. And who was it who who went to his death, trusting himself into the hands of his father to say, Lord, if this is the only way, Father, if this is what you want me to do, then I'll do it. I trust myself into your hands. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Who was it who went to his death and then came out on the third day rose up, went back into the city, and kept on telling people about himself, kept on calling people to life. Well, it's Jesus, isn't it? Isn't this a portrait of him? In the Apostle Paul, we see echoes of Jesus. We see he's marked by his master. Are you? Will you be this week? As you get out of bed, swing your legs and put your feet down on the ground this week. Out of bed, out to work, out to coffee and cake, out to the shops, out to wherever you're going, and then back home again to rest. Will you take Jesus with you? Will you let him lead you? Will you trust yourself into his hands and share, tailor that message to others, spreading seed and trusting them into his hands? And then will you spend time with him in prayer, time with others, asking good questions, sharing the good news, time to trust God and put ourselves into his hands as we walk his missionary way this week. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for, uh, for Jesus. Thank you that he did this for us, that he gave us time, that you give us time today and listen to people like us in prayer, and that you are so patient with us, Lord. Thank you that you tailor this message for us, that we have Bibles printed in English and in all the sorts of different languages, in Welsh too, in many languages around the world, so that we can know and hear this good news in our own language, in our own metaphors, in our, um, in our own culture. Lord, help us to do that too, as good missionaries. Help us to trust ourselves to you. Help us to trust in you and all that you've done 
and to follow you in giving people time and in taking this message and doing whatever it takes to help people understand all that you've done for us in your son, the Lord Jesus. Amen.